Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we have the honor of welcoming Louise Shemtov and Elad Verbin, two of the three founding partners behind Luna Ventures, Europe's hands-down most technical early-stage VC, investing in frontier computing science deep tech. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs are in Europe and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Louis, Elad, welcome to the European VC. It's super cool to have you. It's not often that we have two guests. And so maybe let's start off by letting you guys introduce yourselves, who you are, what you're about, so our listeners can get to know you a bit. Thank you for having us. So I'm Elad, and this is Louis, and we are uh, two founding partners in Lunar Ventures. Lunar Ventures is a European 40 million pre-seed and seed VC investing in deep tech founders and deep tech startups based on computer science and building moonshots. So we were started to, based on the realization that there's amazing deep tech founders from all kinds of STEM fields in Europe, but the VC ecosystem is not set up to support them. It's set up to support more business innovation. And that there's a lot of founders just getting a lot of support from their investors in all of the business side, in running a company, in growth and so on, but not enough support from someone who can evaluate their business, help them do strategy, R&D strategy, and really can understand what it is that they are developing, right? So we set Lunar Ventures, which is the two of us, as well as Mick Halsband, Alberto Cresto, and a lot of support. And our mission is to make sure that European deep tech founders find it as easy to raise in Europe as they do in Tel Aviv or in the Valley. We focus anywhere in pre-seed and seed, anywhere in Europe, and we focus on computer science moonshots. So anything around cryptography, machine learning, databases, developer tools, crypto, and anything else we believe algorithms, he who controls the algorithm controls the world, and algorithms are very quickly taking over many parts of industry, and we are supporting the kind of finders that make this a reality. That's about the fund. In my own background, I am a computer scientist. I got into computer science in a very young age, and I did a research career where I published in the big computer science conferences and so on. And my research was always from first principles, which made it kind of interesting to go into VC because I also approach VC from first principles. So I did a PhD in Tel Aviv University and a couple of professorships, one of them with NDR and Shingra, who won the Turing Award for inventing a lot of modern computer science. In particular, he's one of the inventors of quantum computing and quantum algorithms. I invented a lot of type of cryptography. He invented them in the 80s. We invest in them now. I did another professorship in Aarhus University that I know Andreas is on the other side of Denmark from Andreas. And then I moved to industry, got into machine learning to predict the stock market, and together with my other partners, realized that really what we think we can bring a lot of change the world in a significant, in a dramatic way is by actually taking these very deep tech skills and applying them to investing in startups to really understanding what the founder is building. We should definitely get into that once Luis has introduced himself, but that is, of course, super interesting. Hi, Luis here. I am also one of the founders of Lunar. I'm the commercial one. I'm a fairly technical commercial person, but I'm the most commercial of us, the three of us. Started my career 
in IT, of all things. Early 2000s, it was still hard to build websites and do e-commerce. Did even get like a local file sharing server. It was pre-Dropbox and all this kind of stuff. Did that for a bit while studying social sciences. So like my actual academic career is in media studies and psychology. Never intended to work in this, right? I have always been very drawn and found it very easy to be almost like an almost engineer. I wouldn't say I'm an engineer, I'm an awful coder, <laughs> but going very, very close to it. Never felt the need to actually study it and do it full time. As career goes, started in IT, moved on to do product. It's fairly natural move. I understand both sides of the aisle and spent about 10 years translating kind of business needs, customers, internal, external, et cetera, being between a person building new capabilities and a person who needs some business problem solved for them. Ah, that's super cool. And this, of course, speaks your background to all our listeners who are, many of them are emerging managers. And they've heard a million times from the Fund of Fun guys on this podcast that you need to have a clear thesis and then you need to be different from what everyone else are. And I think it stands out very clearly here that you have a very narrow investment thesis and your backgrounds correspond perfectly to that. So that's just important to pull out. And I think, Eli, you said two things that I think is super interesting. One being here, VC in the US and Israel, we need to get in Europe to a point where it's as easy as a deep tech founder in the computer science area to be able to raise us in the US and Israel. Could you maybe speak a bit more to how far we are from that mission and what steps we need to take as an industry? Maybe just on the previous point, we were set up inspired by founders who needed help, who needed investors to understand what they're doing. So actually, we never said uh, we want to start a VC And now, in fact, we, we were in the Berlin deep tech ecosystem and we saw what problems founders have. And we were like, oh, we should, there's a huge opportunity here. Clearly their needs are unmet. What should we do? And we spent like six months or a year studying what the solution space is. Is it an incubator? Is it an accelerator? Is it an EF type program? Is it a VC? People then we talk to people who are doing incubators and they taught us, no, what you want is not an incubator because of reasons that I can explain. So we had the client problem way before we knew what we're doing about it. And through a process of market research, we realized that what we should do is start a VC to exploit that opportunity on the one hand, right, a huge venture opportunity, and to help solve this problem on the other hand. Luis was kind of leading that iteration process. And yeah, you know, like very often with founders reluctant into doing this. It's like you bump into a problem in the world and you keep being frustrated it's not solved. And then you start asking yourself, okay, how do I solve this? Oh, shit, I have to start a company. <laughs> That's yeah. a, a problem. <laughs> what are the steps we need to take in Europe to get VC for deep tech founders to the same level as we are at the in US and Israel? Yeah, there's something a bit disingenuous about this. Europe as advanced as the US or Israel because it is at least a couple startup generations behind, right? The way that VC ecosystems work is that the exited founders become angel investors and push the entire market up sophistication levels and this iterates and creates a virtuous cycle because the, it's like technology. The things that were difficult to you three cycles ago are easy to you today because there's institutional knowledge. So yeah. it's a bit disingenuous. It will take time and we see it even inside of Europe. There's no one Europe, right? The UK is way more sophisticated than most of Western Europe and Western Europe is super sophisticated compared to CE 
and Iberia. And when you talk to Iberian founders, they're like, oh, we need to get a British angel investors because on the one hand, they will invest in Iberia, but on the other hand, they know how things are done. They will bring this institutional knowledge. So one thing is just churning through the generations and doing them quickly. And another is keeping the founders here rather than having them move to the U.S., right? Because when the founders of Colibra, just for one example, are in the U.S. rather than here, they are less supportive. I mean, some of them are here, but they are less supportive of the startup ecosystem here. Or maybe a better example even is Magic Pony. I mean, um, all of that knowledge is in the U.S. and would like to come here, but there's all kinds of institutions. Once you're already there, you're part of the Silicon Valley ecosystem, it's very tempting to stay and so on. So one of the things is to attract those to build a welcoming enough system that attracts those people back and to make sure to iterate on startup generations locally. There's this saying, science advances one funeral at a time, <laughs> which is saying the old physicists have their own models of thinking about the world. And in chemistry and biology, it's even worse. So you won't advance with the old guard no matter what. I know it's a bit of a morbid metaphor, but I think it's kind of true for VC. New VCs bring new models, and old VCs do old VC things. So I think that while we need the old VC ecosystem, a lot of our LPs are actually VCs of bigger funds that understand what we're doing and understand why it's important. We need the old VCs, but we need way more, and luckily the amount of money is going exponentially. We need way more emerging managers that don't do copycats of the old funds, but rather do new models, parallelize on those, and bring new ways of operating, because also we see... <laughs> We see advances one bankruptcy at a time and uh, one, you know, set of founders, yep. set of yep. partners yep. going, you know, phasing yep. out. And so we need a lot more money to emerging managers. I always uh, say that when I talk to LPs and to the European Union and so on, that we need massive amounts more money to emerging managers, especially those doing deep tech, but it's true for every type of investment. And that they should stop being afraid of putting money in untested or in less tested managers, because that's the way to produce outside returns, and that's the way the ecosystem will move forward. It's a great revenue. It's both very profitable, and it's a great revenue generator as well for the whole continent, right? The amount of economic activity created from new managers is unbelievable. I think the natural question here then is to zoom in on you and then say, okay, you really managed to do so then. So tell us what do emerging managers need to do and what made you so successful in your race? The hardest thing about this is how long and how arduous the process is. Between kind of deciding to do something together, getting frustrated that there are no VCs would back a company we want to start, realizing we should do something about that, realizing it's a VC fund, and reaching the final close of fund one, it's been four years. Three of them at zero income, right? Yeah. We are different on one aspect. We're not diverse on others. And one of the reasons is that it takes a certain level of privilege to even be able to get into this business, much more so than it does to get to start a startup, yeah. which is already kind of a yeah. problematic thing to get into. So on the one hand, uh, investors would very much like to back people who have in-industry experience, which I find to be a, a bias. I'll tell you why in a second. But that means that you had to have been able to get into an existing VC fund, learn the practice from them, learn the biases from them, and then five years later, you might be able to convince a few investors to let you try. Now, why is this a bias? The one thing that's not missing in an industry, any industry, are the people who come from this industry. The easiest thing to hire in VC are VCs. There are a ton, just a ton of people churning out of the big funds every year after a couple of years as associates and principal, 
that are looking to join firms. We spend like two years walking around the ecosystem, like explaining or answering the question, but none of you is a VC. How are you raising a fund? Well, none of you are an LP until you are an LP, right? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's not that unlearnable and it's not unhirable to solve the problem. I'm sure, yes, you probably did say that, but that maybe you had some more arguments. <laughs> what did you have to do to prove it? Actually, can I add something? Yeah. For the target audience, I think it's particularly interesting for emerging managers. What kept me up at night in our first three years or so, even after our first close, is why would anyone invest in the first close of an emerging VC? any VC whatsoever. The value proposition there for the LP is so remarkably poor that even today, I can't give you a purely logical, strong reason why anyone would invest in our own first close. That kind of problem became mooted at our last close, but I'll tell you about that. And that's what I think emerging managers should ask themselves. And they won't get a good answer, but as the answer becomes less bad, they know that they're getting somewhere. So let me tell you the economics because I think it's not necessarily clear to emerging managers what the issue is. So I'll tell you. When you invest in a startup, there's a very clear economic reason to come early because the valuation increases with time. Purely structural because startup investing is set up correctly. You come in early, it's cheaper. So you get more of the equity, better deal. And the earlier you come, even two months, you get a better deal, you know, incrementally, depending on the situation. This is absolutely not true for funds. It's not even close to two. It's absolutely almost the opposite. When you come in a first close of a fund, you get worse deal, meaning it's more risky than when you come to the last close of the same fund. And the reason is that the dollar that comes in the first year is the same as the dollar that comes in the last year. They're all mixed together and they don't have identity, so they're all fungible. But you put it in early, so you don't get that much compensatory interest and so on. So you actually, your money is doing less work for you and you took in more risk. Isomer backed us in our first close, in fact, facilitated our first close. It would have looked very different if Isomer didn't back us at the first close. It's curious because, uh, you know, uh, you know that and many of our audience do as well, that we had Joe on for this show. And Joe also talked about his position on taking shares in the management company or taking preferential positions compared to the LPs that come later. And he's very much against that, even though that they are incubating funds. What are your views as managers on this? There's no way to structure it so that it actually corrects for the disadvantage. I can tell you why, because it's a collective action problem, because someone has to put the first dollars in, and if no one does, then the thing doesn't get created. It's a Kickstarter. It's like the kind of thing that Kickstarter came to solve. VC creation, emerging management creation, is such a less efficient thing that someone still needs, like in the Kickstarter, pre-Kickstarter, someone needs to move first. There's like sweeteners and stuff like this. There are all kinds of ways to financially engineer it, but in the end... I think you need a first close LP that really believes in what you're doing and wants this thing to be exist in the world. And if you don't, none of it financially makes sense. Let me let me maybe ask a slightly different question and coming back to where we started, which is your own process of okay, there is a problem. We know founders are going through this problem. How can we solve this? Is it an incubator? Is it an accelerator? Whatever is it, right? And fast forward now. The solution is Lunar Ventures, right? But there is a lot of innovation going in the venture space itself. So there's different ways to set up the funds. So rolling funds, you could many emerging managers are just doing SPV after SPV after SPV just because it's quick and easy. And you know, the money is for that specific deal at that specific moment. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And you guys opted for a more kind of, I would say, at least this is my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, a traditional VC structure fund. Why? All of the emerging structures are really good when you're investing in companies that are on the obvious track. If your value proposition is I managed to get a couple hundred thousands in a round led by index, 
it is incredible that you can do a quick SPV and get a few of your friends and family and build a track record. If what you want to do is back uh, teams in Croatia building um, compilers for web apps, that's for a company of ours, Wasp, then that is, you know, kind of you have to lead this. Yeah. Even though it's post-YC, you know, like you as a person who is very different have to lead this deal and has to structure this deal. And that is not doable on an SPV because the angels can't use the signal of Oh, index is leading, that's it. No need to do any diligence to just plow in. There is a lot more work. So kind of the more what you do is uh, out there, the less all of those new mechanisms can work for you. You know, maybe there are some types of celebrity who can uh, use rolling fund structures to be able to do whatever they want and to be able to go uh, and do more out there stuff, more uh, innovative stuff using those structures. But for the most part, what you see this gets used to is I'm an angel, I managed to squeeze a small ticket into a very, very, very hot deal. Yeah, when you do innovative stuff, they're not hot deals yet. They hopefully will be hot deals in a couple of years once the market catches up. If I can add one thing, when we set up the fund, we were different in one thing, which is that we do investments, the kind of investments you'd see in the US or in Israel. And it was very important for us to not change anything else. Right? You only change on one parameter if you possibly can, because that's how market change works. So we kept everything vanilla, except this one thing. Yeah. Deep tech, uh, investing in the kind of companies that can't get funded yeah. Yeah. properly in Europe. We've been kicking around the term, the VC twilight zone. I really think that we have so many talking about deep tech now, but you know, yes, we have stuff that has become mainstream deep tech. <laughs> and then we still have like the Croatia deal you talked about, Luis, that is definitely still VC twilight zone, right? So everything starts in BC Twilight Zone, right? At some point, building a railroad or a canal was complete innovation. What are these crazy people doing? At some point, you know, quickly or slowly, becomes absolutely obvious. Mm -hmm. It used to be that building, that selling stuff online is VC Twilight Zone. Are you crazy? Wow, there's no encryption. How are you going to put our credit card? Yeah. You, you hear early internet pioneers from the 90s, 20, 30 years ago, they knew how hard it used to be. I'm super curious then, because when you're investing in the VC Twilight Zone, which you are in many ways, you're pioneering investments into the uninvestable companies almost sometimes. That often comes with, yes, huge commitment from you first, but there's also the issue of, you know, there's a financing risk. Can you actually raise for a round three years down the road when it's something that mainstream VC haven't caught up on? How do you solve for that? I don't think there's a VC twilight zone per se. You just need investors that understand what they're looking at. That was true for Silicon Valley, right? I mean, when you have tech people investing in startups and they understand what they're looking at, and all of a sudden it doesn't look like an undifferentiated mess of things that don't have any proof points. They have proof points. These people are, some of them are very smart people and some of them are doing things that are less promising and knowing the one from the other is something that someone who understands the fundamentals, who understands computer science, who understands how computer science comes to market, who understands the patterns and so on, can distinguish. I, I can't say we have a 100% correlation with everything. I don't have a crystal ball. But when you have the training for this from growing up in the Israeli startup ecosystem and knowing computer science, knowing how to read the research and so on, I think a much better signal, let's say. From the hedge fund world, that's what you look at for a much better signal. Now, down the line, these startups start looking 
looking like a very normal and investable startup because they already are post-product, they're post, they have some uh, proof points, they have some MR, MRR and market traction and so on. And three years down the line from one of these moonshots, it looks like a great startup, in a good case, that has a secret sauce. And the startups that start from day one building MRR and so on typically don't have that secret sauce as much. Maybe that secret sauce comes from the business innovation. The quintessential example, almost a cliche, is Google, right? Or Skype, you can tell the same story about Skype, but many others. Google had a secret sauce, which comes from PageRank and so on and, and doing all of that and big data and being able to mine the whole web and so on. And they developed it for a while and they got funding from professors, <laughs> from professors and very technical investors. And, you know, two years down the line, it's a search engine with secret sauce that beats Yahoo, no problem. I remember the first time I used Google, it's, it's magic. Oh, by the way, when you do biotech, biotech investors are set up to understand the white papers and to read it and to understand what's going on and the means of operation of the drug and so on in the early stages. And three years down the line, it looks like a pharma project that's going for FDA. And by that point, the normal pharma investors know how to do this. So you just need expertise at the earliest levels in order to understand what you're seeing. It's like the matrix, right? It looks like an undifferentiated mess unless you know how to read the matrix, and then it looks like a complete, clear picture of the world. You still need to fight Agent Smith, but you see them. And funding markets tend to evolve. So you have kind of the subsets of VC, cybersecurity VC, bio VC, software VC, SaaS VC, and all of them start out with something early stage, a bit out there in the twilight zone, quote unquote. And eventually, you know, as these companies mature and become kind of something everybody wants to hire, obviously being a serious A firm that only does software is not crazy anymore because they start existing because the deal flow exists. So when we do this stuff in Europe, one of the assumptions kind of coming into this was that by the time our companies mature into a serious A, there'll be firms in the market that will mature, that will show up with them. So we were basing that assumption on cases where founders were able to raise internationally from the get-go, were able to start these companies in Europe. And the assumption was that by the time our companies mature, Sequoia will have a local office and Lightspeed will have a local office and Bessemer will have a local office. All of them just announced in the last six months, right? So that prediction turned out to be true. And immediately after them, a bunch of locals will start building firms to compete with them on that deal flow. Kind of the assumption is that eventually there is a new kind of VC sub ecosystem doing exactly those companies across the stack and it detaches yeah. from the general yeah. purpose market. Exactly. Just like bio, where across the stack, people understand bio. From the pre seed all the way to the IPO, everybody understands bio. I just want to kick in here that it is hugely cool to hear you guys speak both incredibly informed on the tech side and on the startup side of things, the company creation, but you are as well versed in your sector within the VC world. And that is where I'm seeing many emerging managers, you know, they love the startup side and all that, but the VC game isn't as well described in their mind. How do they fit? What's the ecosystem around them? What are the waves they're riding on? And it's very clear that you fit in both I just think that's super sexy about your team. Thank you very much. No, but you have to, right? I mean, when you see a VC who just wants to talk about startups and doesn't care about industry you plays in, it's a bit like seeing a founder just thinking about his technology and not thinking yeah. about users. Yeah. We always talk about founders. There's a Mike Mapers quote, I look for founders from the future. We always look for founders from the future. Well, I think LPs should, to some extent, I don't want to toot their own home, but LPs should look for VCs from the future, right? I wish I could tell you, oh, we've done immense amounts of unbelievable research and found the best strategy in advance. But no, we had a really solid guess about what's the big gap and how it will fit inside of the market. And we just kind of slightly pivoted, but not even much. I mean, the deal in the beginning wasn't super far off from what we have now. 
And we just had a really good hypothesis about how the world works that I believe is from the future. And it just turns out to be pretty much the way we thought it was so far. I mean, I hope. And I think that's how the future is going to look. Quants are going to take over the world of every sector in society, not only tech. Algorithms are going to take over the world. And the type of deep tech computer science is going to just strengthen and strengthen. I'm playing into a field where I know the fundamentals are so good that I could index over it. And it would be amazing. I mean, I want to do much better than Index because I need to help the founders build that companies. I want to do super better than Index and build the scene that I am investing into and believe in the building that we are building is as we're building it. But the reality is the fundamentals are phenomenal in computer science investing. And, you know, it's playing on easy mode. Very hard still, like everything. But compared to other sectors, I think it's playing on easy mode. I want to ask here a multi-part question just to let you also expand on it. We've been tiptoeing around, you know, the term deep tech a lot. And you guys have a unique view of what is deep tech and what is missing in deep tech in Europe. And that informs a lot the way you guys operate. I'd love for you to share that with our listeners as well. But then maybe use that kind of intro, that context that's setting up to also expanding on your view of how to do investing in deep tech and how that informed some core decisions. For example, why a 40 million fund? Why not bigger? Why not smaller? What I'm thinking is, for example, some investors in biotech will say, if you want to do bio at seed stage, you need this amount of gunpowder. And so a fund of less than X makes no freaking sense. Right? So I would love to have your take on these two topics, the industry as a whole, what is missing, what is needed, and then how that informs also your kind of investment strategy. That's a 20 minute question. Um... <laughs> <laughs> deep tech is any kind of building of technology that doesn't exist yet and is going to build the future. You know, it's kind of infrastructure. If you think of the industrial revolution, you think of the trains and then of electrification and then of aviation, any kind of the printing press, any kind of thing that doesn't exist in the world that is going to make a large impact because it gives people new superpowers. That is deep tech to me. And then the thing kind of sells itself. There's a fascinating story that we don't have time to about how the printing press got started. It was a bunch of rich people from his childhood or from his surroundings. But once the thing gets started and, you know, gets up to speed, it sells itself very well. So you need that sales and so on because you're really changing the market. That's deep tech. We specifically focus on software deep tech, and this is going to be important when we talk about how much resources it needs for the fund. So we focus on algorithms, and algorithms are very cheap because all you need is salaries, right? Computers are easy, deployment is easy, this is not flying cars, and it's not nuclear reactors, and it's not like we never look at, we talk about bits, not atoms, I think it's a lax terminology, and uh, they do atoms, not bits often. Uh, so we talk about bits, not atoms, both because we are all digital people, Israel is in general a digital superpower, not an atom, but rather bits, uh, for uh, historical reasons, but also because that's what we're passionate about, and also it's very cheap to innovate in bits rather than atoms. So that's our expertise mostly. That informs the fund size because less resources are needed to build this big thing that didn't exist in the world that is now going to sell itself. Less resources are needed to get to the magic part of the magic if two equation. As for the size of why 40 million, kind of we went the hard route. And that's, by the way, for your previous question, what's different and why do funds of funds and how can you understand both markets? We obsessed over this for a few months, trying to answer the question of what's the right strategy and how to build it, and came back to the obvious answer. So I thought, well, it's obvious. When you look at the people who do these type of companies in other markets, these are the fund sizes. Everybody ends up between 30 and 60. Uh, it changes a bit the strategy. By the time you reach 100 million, you're a very different animal. And I thought of the same thing from first principle. So what are these companies? How many people do they need to hire? What are the salaries? 
are these people hireable? How much do we have to pay them? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How long does it take? Because a bunch of software people, you know, we did the crazy thing and went into building software and built kind of a hacky Monte Carlo simulation of how do startups behave in their early days and ran a bunch of synthetic portfolios on actual market data to actually simulate kind of what should it be and how will these companies mature and how does the market look. And it came back with the same answer. It came back with 40 million, right? That's the point in the curve. So the entire VC market kind of as collective intelligence has learned that this is the size. But truth is that if you look at the fundamentals, how much do people cost, how where do you fly, et cetera, et cetera, you get exactly to the same point. Now, that is good when you do a very early type of market development where you do the pre-seeds and seeds and et cetera, et cetera. By the time these companies mature, if you want to invest in them after or during product market fit, then yeah, you grow to the next stage, 100 to 120. Uh, if you want to be able to fight your way into the Series A's, you go out and raise 500 million. And you know, you can run the simulation, but you're going to discover the exact same numbers that you see this fund sizes of Root or Workbench or Lux or Andreessen. And by the stage they play, the, size, the fund size. The other thing that affects this kind of is the cost of labor, because most of the expense of those companies is labor, which is why you're kind of seeing a creep up in fund sizes these days, because the cost of labor, especially in tech, has, has gotten higher. There is more demand than supply, or at least there is more demand than proven supply. There is a ton of supply. Universities are churning out people. And that's the other thing pushing pushing this up, but that's kind of regular tied to inflation. One addition, they often say your fund size is your strategy, but no one explains why. So let me give a quick explanation just for the, for the audience. Think about a typical small, the smallest startup you'd like to invest in, and then think about what fund size would make this ticket too small to actually focus on properly. So for us, we would want to write 300K into a round of 400 or 500K. I don't want to not be able to do that. And if we have to be able to write a 300K ticket, the fund shouldn't be much larger than 40 million because you just don't have the organizational, uh, it's, it's a too small of a part of the fund and the associate ends up doing it and you go, we can't really, we have other things in mind. I see it with bigger funds. They can't write a 500K ticket even as much as they want to. And that instructs what they can do. So your fund size is your strategy, literally in terms of your focus and your time and your incentives and so on. I want to thank you for quoting Mike Maples not once but twice now. Ah, I didn't know it's him. Okay. Uh, nah, <laughs> it is. Uh, I'm a, I'm a huge amazing. fan of him. Uh, I have uh, quoted him a couple of times, if not a dozen, on this show. I have a pet project on, you know, taking his theory on starting breakthroughs and insight development, applying that to emerging managers, because I believe very much as you do, that you need to uncover those next upcoming original thinking managers to get that alpha. Otherwise, we're going to keep on investing in the three Xs. Now, but super cool, Eli and Lewis. So I think we should pay some credence to the fact that you actually have managed to get four fund of fund investors with you. You have Joe from Isomer, you have Ertan from Multiple, then you have the EIF team, of course, and then also the Spanish team. I, uh, the, the name slips me off. Yeah, Aldea, of course. And I think that it would be super interesting to hear just how that LP structure is working out for you and what do you think allowed you to get all of them on there? So in general, it's working great, right? As a founder of a company, you want the smartest VC to be on your board. As a fund founder, you want the most experienced and smartest LPs on your board or being able to answer your phone when you have a question. 
And all of those people you mentioned are the right size, kind of. You know, one of the things they talk about in Startup Plan is why would you take a pre-seed from a billion-dollar firm? They're never going to give you the time and the attention. What we don't have are insurance companies. What we don't have are actually large LPs. There are corners of the VC market that will say, you guys are not an institutional fund. What do you mean? <laughs> There's no actual institutional. There are no banks. It's very size and, and stage appropriate, kind of, the people we have raised from now. Why would they come in? I think it's because we have done the work from first principles and because we're obsessing about both sides and because they do see all those trends. They see there is a trend for more technical companies. They see the market maturing and their job is to find the right stage, the right point, the right timing to jump into those things. If I can add something. So we started this conversation with talking about the maturity of the ecosystem as a whole and knowledge, institutional knowledge inside of the ecosystem. And that's what fund of funds provide. Like a fund of funds job, the people's literally full day time, day job there, is to figure out a vision not only for managing their own money, but creating maybe generational, in any case, long term, portfolio of funds for, in the cases of the one we talked about, the like Isomer is a European investor, it kind of supermines the continent, EAF for sure. Part of that job is understanding how the ecosystem should be built and bringing that institutional knowledge, right? So when we sit with any of these four investors in our board and talk to them and all four are in our, in our advisory board, they bring the vision of how to do things reproducibly, of how to set up Lunar is part of the wider ecosystem that, you know, as much as we do our research and so on, we don't have the 50,000 feet vision. Just like when I sit on a board of a company, the founders are 100x more experienced about their company than me, but they don't meet 1,000 startups per year. Well, I don't meet 500 VCs to talk to them about their strategy and so on. And to be a productive part of the ecosystem, this is so incredibly important. Just the, It's a way a bit to quicken this cycle that we talked about in the beginning, right? That you need exits that come back and become LPs and so on, one level up. Funds of funds make this quicker because they uh, bring this knowledge and they spread it among their GPs that they back and the information comes back and forth. So that's what we get. We get a vast trove of institutional knowledge about this in general, about the continent, about people above us, horizontally from us, and a big strategy for uh, VC in general. And if we are to make Europe tech much, much stronger in order to serve all of these STEM founders and all of the amazing founders on the continent, we need this. We need someone to carry information horizontally and vertically throughout the system, and that's what they do. It's like the root system of VC. On that note, <laughs> it's funny because out of those four, we're just missing one on our show. <laughs> so looking forward to get them as well. But uh, it's great guys. And we've learned personally a bunch. And I think our listeners as well have enjoyed it thoroughly. So I think we can all totally understand what you're saying, Elad. Louis, Elad, great having you on the European VC. We hope to be in touch and be of assistance with anything we can. And um, thank you for your time. It was great. And uh, thank you. And for any founders or any VCs or any founders or anyone that wants to talk to us, our Twitters and emails are very public. I'm Elad at Lunar Ventures and Luis is Luis at Lunar Ventures and just ping us. And we make ourselves very, very accessible on purpose. Thanks, guys. Thanks a million. We will for sure bring you back, guys. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the European VC, your podcast for insights 
into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.